This is Mark A. Altman, and you're listening to The 430 Movie. Welcome to Video Game Week. Back in the 70s and 80s, before the advent of VHS, chances are if you saw a classic movie, it was on the 430 movie. With their famous theme weeks, it was a chance to see movies you never saw and get reacquainted with some old classics. Now, on the 430 movie, we take over the vertical and the horizontal and put together our dream theme weeks that you could watch at home and relive the glory days of the 430 movie. Welcome. Our regular panel of programmers are back, starting with the great Stephen Melching, a writer for such series as Batman, The Brave and the Bold, X-Men, The Animated Series, and Star Wars Rebels. Welcome, Steve. Mark, I've got a Pac-Man fever, and the only (laughs) prescription is a video game movie. Nice. (laughs) Well, we should really find you a prescription for that. Um, okay, Darren Doctorman is a conceptual designer for films and TV series such as Master and Commander in the second season of Westworld and the designer of our fantastic logo t-shirts now available at 430movie.com. That's Including four- our wonderful 430 Movie logo so that you can walk around and have people ask, what the heck is that? And then you say, I just gave it five stars on <laughs> Apple Podcasts and you should subscribe right now and last but not least ashley e miller the e as we've learned stands for evil writer for (laughs) such films as thor and x-men first class and tv series such as fringe black sales and the upcoming lore season two on amazon welcome ashley hi there (laughs) video game movies wow i I mean you know this is gonna be a short week (laughs) no are are these movies that just look like they're video games, or are they based on video games? What are the parameters? I, I don't, I, you know what? I, my guess is they're maybe not based on video games, because let's face it, an awful lot of these video game adaptations aren't very good. I would say perhaps they should be movies that require the idea of a video game to be at the heart of its story. You know, That's it's funny. Idea. You remember a few weeks ago, Ashley, I asked to recuse himself because he had written uh, X-Men First Class, and, um, you know, that's a great movie. Sadly, I need to recuse myself from some video (laughs) game movies I was involved with for a totally alternate reason, although I can't imagine showing any of them on this movie because they're awful. Because you you Uh, created Tron, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, look, it's to regale you with stories of the uh, sad and tragic making of House of the Dead would be uh, far too long um, for this podcast. But the stories I can tell about that crappy movie um uh, and uh, then you know i also did uh, dead or alive which is somewhat better and did a bunch of uh, drafts on that and uh, all i can say is um my script was better <laughs> 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 but you'll never see it so uh anyway um video game week i i think uh you know video uh game movies are are whether maligned for the most part whether fairly or or not um i'm going to be really interested to see what this week's going to shape shape up to be. So uh, let's start with Steve, Monday. Well, you know, I don't think you can kick off uh, a video game movie week without the granddaddy of them all, the movie that arguably started the whole thing, Disney's Tron. 
1982. I mean, this is a film boop, boop, that, boop, boop. <laughs> end of life that was uh, conceived to take place, you know, inside uh, the computer world. Uh, although video games are at the heart of it, as um, we all know that Flynn was the uh, designer of a number of incredibly popular video games that were stolen from him. Yeah, Space and, Paranoids. <laughs> He was the best Zaxxon player in the universe, <laughs> and the chicks dug it. Look, I'm still, you know, 40 years later trying to get over that wall in Zaxxon, the first 3D game. That was not easy. It I wasted not, more oh quarters trying to get over that first wall. Yep. You know, we should be recording this from Flynn's, Flynn's Arcade down in Culver City. You know, well, that's where maybe we, we are. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we you don't are. Maybe they just don't know it. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's uh, legend has it that this was one of Al Gore's favorite movies. Uh, <laughs> because he invented the Internet. Um, in the but, uh, you know, it was a really fantastical, fun movie that uh, had to kind of create a whole new sort of uh, lexicon and, and uh, visual language for the in- inside of a video game. Like, how do, you, how do you imagine what the inside of a video game is? How would you do it, Darren? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and of course, it spawned uh, you know a lot of imitators. Uh, Auto Man on television, oh. um, the sequel Tron Legacy, which I think was half of a really great movie. I love the first half of that movie. I got to work on that, and that's all I'm going to say on that. <laughs> it was a beautiful looking film. It certainly it was, was immaculate. The score, actually, the score of both films is terrific. The Wendy Carlos score in the original Tron is terrific and the Daft Punk score in Tron Legacy is amazing. I think that is the greatest legacy of Tron <laughs> are the scores uh, by Wendy Carlos. It had a great later. setup. It had a wonderful setup, uh, the Tron Legacy. Um, and uh, and the, the, the animated series, Tron Uprising, was actually quite good as well. Yeah, well, it you just know, sort of fell apart in the last scene when we were expected to believe that a, uh, a woman who came from a video game world was super impressed when she saw the skyline of Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where we filmed House of the Dead. Uh, so. But of course it starred, you know, Jeff Bridges, who's awesome in anything. And then, yeah. um, oh gosh. And Bruce Boxleitner. Bruce Boxleitner is <laughs> Tron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, oh my gosh, why am I suddenly blanking on her name? Cindy Williams. Cindy Williams. But not no, Cindy not, Williams not from Cindy, Laverne and No, not Shirley. Cindy Williams. That's yeah. not her name. Different Williams. It's, no, it's, uh, it's Cindy, Cindy Morgan. Cindy, Cindy Morgan, Morgan, yes. I'm sorry. Cindy Morgan. Yes. Uh, Captain of course, Morgan. from uh, Caddyshack uh, yeah, as well. Right. Um, and, you know, who who didn't dream of getting digitized and going into, you know, playing a, you know, video games were incredibly popular in 1982. Yeah, I prefer uh, Steve uh, Lisberger's other classic, Electric Dreams. <laughs> uh, you know what? I love... <laughs> I'm dying, apparently. You guys are getting, like, this is a, a recording of Ashley's death. You're getting de-resolutioned. <laughs> totally. Um, I love Electric Dreams. So uh, why? Virginia Let's Madsen talk about that is like is so unbelievably beautiful in that. It's like, she of course, is. the computer falls in love with her. Like, I remember the song that he wrote for her. Oh God, yeah, uh, yeah. Madeline, I love you two bits, and I. Um, <laughs> but uh, no. Did we talk about David Warner in this movie? I know, David Warner's fantastic. You read my mind. I, I, you can't talk about Tron without talking about David Warner, who's just so – and that was the height of his powers. I mean, he was in Time Bandits. He was in Tron. He was the villain in everything, you know, and, and you know, now you have these guys – I think the mantle sort of passed to J.T. Walsh, right. you know, before he died, and now it's sort of like um, – um, uh, what's his name? Uh, who's like the villain? And then it was Rick Alan Rigman for a while, and then you know. Now and of course, David Warner was also like, in Time After Time. 
And John Voight was uh, the villain in all these things for a while. Oh yeah, and of course. Uh, well, I had the. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to work with David Warner. He he did a lot of uh, animated series voices uh, in the '90s and 2000s, and he was a regular voice on the Men in Black series, and he was just delightful. Yeah, I met him once, and 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 he was great. I mean, he was so great they brought him back from Star Trek Five for Star Trek Six. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> well, you know the 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 never forgettable Sinjin Talbot from Star Trek Five. <laughs> What the heck was he doing there? That's no a, one knows. That's a, he, he was much better as the Klingon uh, Chancellor Gorkhan, not to be confused with Gorbachev. Um, so, Mike, you know, the one thing that you didn't mention, of course, is the groundbreaking visual effects. You know, this was really the very early uh, CGI uh, world, and and it's pretty remarkable what that group, uh, like Richard Taylor, I'm sure, Aaron, yeah. Darren, you can talk more about that, uh, did uh, at the time. Well, the, the thing is, it was a combination of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It did have, uh, you know, one of the first uh, CG representations that would have been used uh, with models. Um, for example, the light cycles and uh, Sark's uh, carrier and things like that. Uh, but it's also uh, a backbreaking amount of traditional cell animation going on all those uh, all the live action in the computer world had to go through cell animation to make the glows and all that sort of stuff and it's a incredible amount of uh, laborious work and uh, it's just an, it's, it's amazing it's amazing that they got it done at all yeah. actually um, but um, it's it's uh, I mean they had to they, they created these cotolith frame enlargements. Mm-hmm. Did the animation over and then rephotograph the entire film? Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, all the all the all film the that all the film that was in the computer world. Yes, because yes. that's all in black and white, and then retinted in on the animation stand. Here's an unbelievable fun fact, which has nothing to do with the movie. It was the <laughs> um, the first press screening I ever went to in 1982. Wow. I was you know and I think freshman in high school or something. And I had my little fanzine, Galactic Journal, and was invited to the press screening. And I went, went to see it. And I remember I was so excited about seeing it. I had the pass. And it was all printed out. And oh Tron, goodness. they gave you the little card. They used to give you these cardboard things, which had the cast on the back and on the front. It had the picture of them. With what the newspaper are you from, and, kid? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, in fact, my parents couldn't take me. So we found a family friend to drive me into Manhattan to take me. It was really funny. But um, I, I just remember you know, being really... Um, not a fan at all of the movie at the time. <laughs> and, and in fact, you know, what pe- we talked about the black hole a couple of weeks ago on Shadow of Star Wars Week, which was another attempt by Disney. But this is, it was, you know, Disney, people can't imagine what it was like back then. You know, now Disney owns the world. But back then, they, they couldn't were do anything. They, they were, struggling. were struggling horribly. They couldn't do anything right. Um, they were attempting to get the animation division back, you know, at Black Cauldron, which was a bust. You know, live action. They this didn't was still know. years before The Little Mermaid and those kind of the resurgence. Yeah. Totally. The and, and Tron was supposed to be the film that, you know, put them back, you know, like a real studio. It'd be a real boy again. <laughs> and... Um, and it did, it, it, you know, despite what the, the esteem we hold it in now, it was not a successful movie well, remotely. Well, in 1982, of course, was an incredibly crowded oh, year for God. genre, arguably the, the greatest best. genre year ever. Well, and we I, should do I, a panel about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think, I think that, uh, that we probably uh, will have to do a special report uh, <laughs> do a special on, on uh, 1982 uh, in, in, f- in a future podcast because, of course, it's such a seminal year and we've all talked about that. And that was the beginning of our legendary comic book, uh, Comic-Con panels each year where we mm-hmm. do 
1982 greatest geek year ever and you know subsequently what are we up to 1988 greatest geek year ever Maybe not nine, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> um i saw tron i think at exactly the right age um because i Were you five i was five yes uh no i think i was i might have been 10 years old wow. when i saw it and uh I, of course, I had obviously never seen anything like it. Um, I wanted to live in that world. And the thing that I found most exciting about it, other than Cindy Morgan, was um, <laughs> was uh, there were there was a video. I mean, it's this is the serpent swallowing its own tail once again. There was a video game. There was a Tron video game mm-hmm. that was on the Intellivision, oh, which I yes. had. Oh, and I loved Deadly playing Discs, it. right? Tron yeah, Deadly Discs. because yeah. I could pretend like I was in the movie. Now, did you get a Frisbee and go out and try to actually do de- discs of Tron with your friends oh, yes. in the yard? Yes. Oh, yes. Sometimes my enemies. <laughs> I, I well, killed I, two friends with Frisbees. The television game was great, but the arcade game was oh, amazing. Oh, yeah, sure. The arcade game is still amazing. Yeah, yes. yeah. I, didn't you have a choice of three different games? You, you had to get through uh, four, four different levels, wor- levels yeah. worlds. Um, and, you know, it, it was just enough representational of the movie that it was – you know, interesting and exciting. and But some of the times the levels got really hard and it's tough to, it's certainly tough to get past the uh, the light cycles when they're going full full force. Well, and I think, wasn't there a case where like this was a the video game that was based on the film, but mm-hmm. then they added an element from the video game back into the film? Well, the funny the thing bugs. is when we were, when right. we were working on developing um, uh, Tron Legacy, uh, that video game was going to be we, we, we were going to take a, a Tron cabinet and make it into space paranoids, oh, you know, nice. and, and d- decorate it all like space paranoids. And that was going to be the game. But then pretty late in the in the pre-production, they decided, you know what, why don't we just make this the Tron video game? And that was the game afterwards that uh, that he was very successful on. And I guess that's OK. But it, it takes a little away from, you know, taking the actual story from the first film mm. and making mm-hmm. it real. Yeah. And, and still to this day, uh, the Tron Legacy pop-up arcade at San Diego Comic-Con was one of the greatest things I've mm-hmm. ever been to. They recreated Flynn's Arcade in downtown San Diego, filled it with vintage games and Space Paranoids cabinets. You could actually play Space Paranoids from the, the original movie. One more little story mm-hmm. I got to when I got to work on the sequel was that I got to go with the art director to um, – uh, measure the original uh, Flynn's Arcade location in Culver City. And um, it was a lot of fun because the building is still there. Yeah. It looks exactly the same. For rent you right can now. Still, you can still see the holes in the top facade that they used to attach the neon sign. <laughs> um, and uh, so I measured it out and I, I did a, a bunch of uh, – the stuff that I did for the movie was basically in the real world. So I got to do the painting of what – Flynn's Arcade looked like today and mm. things like that. And that was a lot of fun. But it was uh, it was fun to r- sort of revisit those areas from the original that, uh, you know, it's fun to think about how they would exist today. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. So uh, we all agreed Monday uh, on the 430 movie, you Tron. You got to sure. Tron. Great. Well, before we move to Tuesday, Steve, uh, we need to uh, interrupt our broadcast for a brief commercial message from one of our sponsors. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes. Well... Um, when you are, let's see, who is our sponsor for today? Uh, well, today's podcast is brought to you by Yo-Yo Dine Propulsion Systems of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, where the future begins tomorrow. A growing, excited company. 
Thank you, Yo-Yo Dine, for your support of the podcast and the Red Electroids. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting for the check. <laughs> okay, uh, and next we're going to go to Tuesday. And Darren, would you like to suggest a film for I Tuesday? I would love to suggest a film for Tuesday. Mine is not necessarily a video game, but... <laughs> this is a hell of a video but, game week. <laughs> but, no, but it's the biggest video game of all. It's War Games. Oh. oh. The second press screening I went to. <laughs> 1983. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, Matthew Broderick at uh, arguably the height of his uh, popularity. Um, and uh, it's just, it's such a fun sort of... Uh, link into how things were for a teenager in that time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's still very uh, uh, fake and movie-like, the <laughs> kid hanging around in the, in the arcade and having to go to school and giving lip to the teacher and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it, it is sort of the kind of life you would have liked to have had if you had, you know, an OMSI computer in your bedroom and could, uh, you know, dial up uh, all the phone numbers that you could and then erase your bill. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's such a, a, an interesting look into the future of the Internet, actually. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's uh, the infancy of this sort of technology and sort of how it would uh, – how it would expand over the next uh, two decades uh, is just amazing. And it's sort of one of those uh, movies that is a touchstone for, I guess, hackers and things like that. Uh, and to... Ali Sheedy fans. Well, it well was definitely one of the earliest depictions of hacking, at least that Absolutely. I yeah. Absolutely. Um, but one of the greatest parts about it is that first scene in the uh, missile silo. With uh, with uh, the two uh, men manning the uh, the station, and they get the they get the signal from headquarters that uh, we are on launch, and they have to confirm it and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, one of them has uh, second thoughts, and and you cut to the shot of uh, the younger guy uh, holding a gun up to the head of the other guy, saying, "Pull your turn your key now, sir." It's just. It's just really well done, and it sort of just sweeps you into this uh, big story about this kid who gets uh, uh, swept up in this uh, international uh, uh, intrigue, and it's uh, a lot of fun. And, of course, you're you're at the height of Cold War nuclear paranoia as well. There's actually an interesting story about the development of war games. It's not sort of commonly known. Um, I did a lot of work at one point with uh, with Walter Parks, who wrote the movie, Mm -hmm. and when he originally was assigned that film, it was supposed to be something completely different. The The plot that they were expecting, the story they were expecting to get back um, was, was much closer to real genius than mm. what we got. Mm. Um, they were apparently late with the script by like six weeks and they turned it in and it didn't at all resemble what they said they were going to write. <laughs> Um, and they thought they were going to get fired, but luckily everybody thought that the script was was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love war games, although you know I sometimes have a problem connecting to it as anything other than fantasy, just because once again we have this story about this kid who is um, this very successful computer hacker and and nerd, and he has a really hot girlfriend. <laughs> right? What are you two doing? Well, I thought we'd start off with some kissing and move on to the fancy stuff. I mean, also very witty for a guy who sits behind his uh, his computer all day. Um, but I'll go with it. It's aspirational. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you know, 
I, would you like to play a game? Yes, I would, because I think War Games is just a terrific movie. It's such a great product at the time. It is that kind of early 80s government paranoia movie, mm -hmm. because you saw it in E.T., you saw it in War Games. The government's coming for you. They're going to sweep you. It right. was like, And it was like this post-Watergate kind of thing, but it was always the kids they were coming it's for. It's kind of like Three Days of the Condor Babies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and if you haven't seen Three Days of the Condor, that is a very funny joke. I'm just letting you know. Uh, that's, uh, that's hysterical. Um, and you should see Three Days of the Condor. When we do Spy Week, we'll have yeah. to put that in contention. Yeah, you know, to get back to my press screening story, I remember <laughs> it vividly. I, I left high school early so I could go see war games at the MGM building in New York at the time. And um, I missed my stop on the subway, and I ended up like God knows what horrible neighborhood. I'm like, what, what happened? And I totally realized. And and then I, I had to go across, and I got – I still remember this today vividly. And then I got on the train and came back and just made it in time. And I was like, oh, exhausted. And and, and I, I, I when the movie was over, I'm like so glad. It was so great. I, was, I, I haven't watched it recently. How does it hold up? I, I watched it uh, just uh, a couple months ago. I, I still love it. I think yeah. it's great. Um the uh, you know the soundtrack is a little you know 80s yeah. and dated, but it's still a lot of fun. And you know it started out with a different director. It started out with Marty Brest directing, mm. and uh, for some reason there was uh, creative differences, and he quit or was pushed or whatever. And then John Badham. And came then John in. Badham yeah. came in and finished it. And it's uh, I I love it. It, it, it its tone uh, manages to sort of dance on the serious and comedic. And it does it really well. The uh, you know um, uh, the secondary characters are all extremely well cast, and uh, I just think it's a lot of fun. That was a great year for John Badham. Didn't he also have Blue Thunder that year? I eighty three. So I think so. Yeah. When we do uh, it's helicopter week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't crazy about this movie initially for an, kind of an odd reason. My father was an officer in the Air Force. Mm. And uh, in 1983, we were he was stationed in NORAD oh, in Colorado funny. Springs. So uh, a couple years after the or yeah, about a year after the movie came out, we actually got a tour of the Cheyenne Mountain Complex, which at the time was a very rare event only for immediate family. And mm. I remember being super excited getting to drive up and there's the tunnel that goes into the mountain and you go through the security station and there's there's MPs there with, you know, machine guns and you go through a metal detector and make sure you don't have cameras or anything. You get on a bus and they drive you into this like half mile long tunnel uh, and then you get off the bus and you're, there's the huge blast door. You know, it's like wow. eight feet thick or whatever. And the tunnel doesn't dead end into the blast door, by the way. The tunnel goes all the way through the mountain because if a nuclear blast hits, they want the force of the blast to go right. through instead of butting up against it a door. It goes through the mountain like Bug Crew Bonsai. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you walk in, and the cool thing is there's it's in a gigantic cavern, and the buildings, it's, it's a collection of individual buildings connected with those sort of accordion-like uh, mm. hallway connectors. And they're all built on these gigantic springs that are like four feet in diameter. So if there's a, a, a strike, the buildings can all kind of jostle around. So they around. did have the springs. That's cool. Yeah. and So uh, they got that right. It was yeah. like a bounce house with yeah. nukes. But the uh, you know I got to see the command center, and it was right. kind of a letdown because right. in the movie, it's this fantastical movie right. set that looks so cool. And in real life, it's like, oh, there's some screens and – 
it's a couple of guys and right. welcome <laughs> visitors from yeah. Birmingham. Yeah, and and the hallways are all these. They it looks like a hospital inside. It's really right. boring. Right. But so I was like, hey, this movie's totally inaccurate. Hollywood, <laughs> how could you lie that, to me? It's wild. It's, it's kind of like the movies, the Muppet Babies version of Failsafe. You know, and, I mean, it's so interesting that you go from. You know, Doctor Strangelove and Failsafe to like Colossus, the Forbin mm-hmm. project, you know, in the 70s and then the 80s. Save it you know. for nuclear week. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to be able to talk about anything at this rate. You get to the uh, you get to the 80s and then, you know, it's it's kids, you know, who are dealing with the. You know, and it was that whole era of um, the day after. Mm-hmm. So people right. like to think that duck and well, cover the, was the heyday of the nuclear Because the hippie generation didn't want to deal with it. So they said, oh, let's let the kids take care of it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> let's but, hide behind know, a but children. The 80s, Red Dawn, you know, you got yeah. kids fighting. The, the nuclear threat was still very much with us with the day after and America yeah. and, and these kind of films that were dealing with sort of nuclear apocalypse. And now nobody even, you know, thinks about it, which is, you know, probably, you know, worse. Um but um, so anyway, yeah, well, War Games, great, great suggestion. You know, on some level, um, I, I think it we can't say enough about that script because I think the reason why the uh, the movie holds up the way that it does today and why it felt so smart at the time was just because it was so it was so well written. That tone to me was was there like in what like those in, in what they were getting out of those kids which was coming out of like, I would, the characters that were written for them. I would agree up to a point. There are a couple scenes that are oh, absolutely sure. cringeworthy. Like the scene right after they meet with Falcon and they're out sitting next to the next to the uh, lake and uh, you say, I, you know, the, the, he starts saying, I, I, I don't even know how to swim. You know, I, I you know, I, I, we're, we're all going to die. And, we, and it's a little bit dead on the nose and it's a little cringeworthy. But other than right. those kind of scenes, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And the character of uh, uh, David Lightman, uh, you know, absolutely acts like a real teenager would. Yeah. Well, and, the, and the adults don't seem stupid. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like Coyote. Yeah. The voice no, no, no. Peter, Peter Coyote it's isn't in that. Coyote. It's, uh, you're thinking about E.T. Oh, yeah, I am. I am totally thinking <laughs> yeah. about it. You're right. Peter Coyote has nothing to do with War Games. It's John Lith- Lith- is Dabney, Lith- yeah. No, it Dabney was, Coleman. Dabney Coleman, wasn't yes. Wasn't really. The great okay. Dabney Coleman okay. yeah. who, who doesn't get enough love. Um, yeah. who, uh, you, who are you going to Paris with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of you know not getting enough love, I mean, we, obviously we talked about how great Ali Sheedy is. Yeah, and I, in fact, I had a girlfriend in high school that looked just like her, and totally that reminded me. I, so I had a huge crush on Ali Sheedy, and then I started dating Jennifer, and it was like, oh, it's like great. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the, the Matthew Broderick, we haven't really talked about how right. great he is in that yeah. role, and he just gave a succession of really wonderful performances through the '80s, and. Um, I just, uh, you know, he's, like he's between so, him and Michael J. Fox, they were like the teenagers. Because yep. or, they should have yeah, been a buddy totally. cop. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Matthew Broderick and and and, and, Ma- and Michael J. Fox really defined what it was like to be a teenager in the uh, in the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, Same more so I think than or how we wanted to be. Well, as because teenagers. I would say, you know, yeah. Anthony Michael Hall was a reality probably, <laughs> and then the, you know, but because. You know, somebody like uh, Matthew Broderick and Ferris Bueller or whatever was what you aspired to be, the cool, snarky guy. And War Games is sort of a combination of that. Mm-hmm. And he just does it so well. And then, of course, in his Neil Simon trilogy, he also right. is, mm-hmm. is wonderful. So Tuesday, So Say We All. Sure. So Absolutely. Say We All. Um, War Games. Wednesday, Ashley. Are we actually going to have a real video game movie? Or well, hit for the cycle you know, here? it's it's not just video game week here on the 430 movie. <laughs> Apparently, it's also Dabney Coleman week. Nice. Uh-oh. Because my pick for Wednesday 
is 1984's <laughs> Cloak and Dagger. Okay, oh that's my interesting. God. <laughs> in which we'll bring the a into it too, yeah. paranoid schizophrenic 11-year-old befriends a video game hero, goes on a violent rampage, ending in an airplane bombing. Uh, <laughs> it is heartwarming and um, it's wonderful. I mean, uh, so that's that's perhaps an overly realistic read of kind of what happens in that film. It's basically a, it's a child's you know wish fulfillment mm-hmm. film. Right. He like he projects the hero um, of his favorite video game like as his his father, right. um, and it's really about that relationship. And Henry Thomas is awesome, who you might remember from from a little e. movie called E.T. Yeah. Exactly. He just he was just a great child, and of course actor. Peter Coyote. No and way. Peter Coyote <laughs> and, and Dabney and Coleman. Henry Fonda. Big deep callback to five <laughs> weeks ago. Dabney Coleman plays the video game hero, mm. who you know teaches the kid to shoot people in. What the nuts. kind of video game is that? That Dabney Coleman is the hero. I know. I right? can't. I can't even imagine that game. Or if it would be popular, which I, it would. I just want to say while we're doing the Dabney Coleman Appreciation Society <laughs> meeting that he was on a show that doesn't get any love now, but that is barely remembered, but was so groundbreaking. Do you remember Buffalo Bill? Oh, Buffalo Yes. Yeah. He love was it. so great, and that was a terrific show. <laughs> and, you know, it's not on streaming. You No one talks about it. But that was, like, one of the great comedies, you know. I mean, here they're remaking Murphy Brown and a lot of other shows. Like, Buffalo Bill was was pretty awesome. If I, I don't even remember that much about it other than that Dabney Coleman was great. That was the show <laughs> about the serial killer who keeps collecting <laughs> women and putting them in the basement. And it was brought to us by yeah, Dove no, Body that, Lotion. That was, that was not it. <laughs> Wasn't he a TV, uh, like a TV uh, host? Or, yeah, he was like yeah, a, yeah. a TV anchor or something. Something yeah, like he that. Was like, yeah, but, but really like a, a, a abrasive. And this is back, you know, pre-Fox. So playing that himself, was basically. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, so Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, what a great uh, what a great, <laughs> uh, great suggestion. I so, have to be honest, I've only seen it once, and I, I think it was on HBO, and I was hardly watching it. See, again, I think it's a, it's a matter of kind of how old yeah. um, I was when I, when I saw that film. Didn't Tom Holland write that? Yes, he did. Yeah, he had did just they? done Fright Night yep. mm-hmm. and uh, Psycho 2, and then he did Cloak and Dagger. He he was having he a good. He was like Jeffrey Bohm, like in the '80s. He was like one of these great screenwriters. And then I think after Cloak and Dagger, yeah, he sort of disappeared. But he he also was on fire with some of those films. Fright Night is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, yep. Um, I think he wrote Psycho Two. He did. Yeah, so yeah, I said Psycho Two. Okay. He did Psycho Two, which which is an interesting film because you know to come back and sequelize Psycho after. Uh, you know, 30 20. years or whatever it was at the time, 20 years. I mean, it's pretty amazing that that movie is not a total travesty, uh, you know, and has some things going for it. But we'll save that for a, yes. uh, another movie for, about it. We'll save that for horror sequel week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Questionable yeah. sequels I week. could talk about Psycho 2 and Psycho 3 for a while because I I'm, I find those movies fascinating, even though I don't particularly like either of them because I'm such a huge fan of the original Psycho. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I find both the sequels very interesting. But Tom Holland, I think, was a. Uh, I mean, he he wasn't just kind of creating these these films that wow, we really enjoyed that, and that was that was really great. Like he was actually legitimately like a really good writer. I think the the reason why when his movies worked, why they worked, like why Cloak and Dagger works, is because um, there is there is something very real that's beating. You know, there's a there's a real heart that's beating in these stories, um, and somebody like a Henry Thomas. Uh, brings that out, and mm. you know the the simple fact that that we can be in this story with this kid, and at the same time, um, you know, want to 
you know, we obviously we're we we don't want bad things to happen to him because he's a child, but we're also rooting for him with his relationship with his dad, and we're hoping the dad is really as cool like as his favorite video game character, and then we're also hoping that he gets the medication that he so desperately needs uh, to to manage his obvious psychosis. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of reminds me of that whole era of movies like Gotcha. Right. And when you say they don't make movies like that anymore, they really don't make movies like that anymore, for <laughs> just, better or for worse. Which is kind of too bad. Gotcha. Or Zapped. Or, yeah, yeah, zapped. Yeah, zapped. Oh, my God. Willie Ames turns Dude. invisible. Could you imagine trying to make a movie like Zapped in today's culture? Never, no. never happened. Well, never. you'd have to, you'd have to uh, make the, the lead uh, a female. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, probably of a... Uh, a uh, uh, completely different tone yeah i don't or you know look i think you, know, you could do it with the male but they'd have to get their come up and you know for turning invisible and all these wacky shenanigans you know it's it's uh you know where they would learn something from their experience you know like it's awesome to be able to, right. well, to, to, <laughs> just to, 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 uh, to clarify for our listeners who may not know what the story of zapped oh, is please go ahead I you know I've never really seen the whole thing. It's a guy he gets zapped. He, he gets and powers. gets powers, and he he's a, a, a uses them to chase girls basically. Right. And I'm looking at Deadline. Apparently, the CW has just greenlit that as a TV series <laughs> for next. No, um, <laughs> so uh, freeform. Um, okay. So yes, Wednesday cloak and dagger. Wednesday cloak, cloak and, dagger, and dagger, which brings us to, to Thursday and to moi. I want to mention before I get to Thursday because I'm thinking for about a movie, so I, I gotta run out the clock. Um, I had a Psycho Two one sheet on my wall <laughs> as a kid. That and Conan the Barbarian and and, and Revenge of the Jedi. I don't know oh, when yes. you said Psycho. I hadn't thought about that in years, but it was a great sheet. But it had the house. It was a great mm. picture of the house, yep. and then that awesome font, that Psycho font. Yep. Wasn't that I like had a thing for serial killers, or <laughs> you know? But it was more that I loved that. Image soon to be seen as a T-shirt on the four thirty movie. Four thirty movie dot com. Okay, well, guys, you know there's a lot of video game movies we haven't discussed. Street, Street Fighter, <laughs> nine to five. Uh, so uh, you know, Street Fighter, Resident Evil, Super Mario um, Brothers. Obviously, oh. I can't put you know House of the Dead or Dead or Alive in the contention, nor would I. Um, but I do have my my pick. So I know you've been waiting for an actual video game movie. I'm not going to give you one. <laughs> I I would uh, I would like to nominate the last Starfighter. Oh yes, excellent Starfighter. Um, the, truly the beginning of the CGI era, uh, which you know unfortunately it, it wasn't quite ready for prime time. But uh, you know you have Robert Preston. Um, you have a young. I mean, for people who don't know the movie, it, it, it you know it's just delightful. And it's like the ultimate wish fulfillment. Film for a kid a video who's a video game, game player. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Mom, you think I'm wasting all my time playing video games? Well, I just got picked by aliens to save the universe <laughs> because I'm so good at the video game. And I would actually argue that it's this movie that is the forerunner of CG technology. I said films, that. Yeah. Rather yeah. than Tron. Yes. yes. Yeah. Because all the CG is intended to represent physical models. Uh, you know, in any other movie. It it would have been photoreal physical models in any other world. And uh, I think it's just miraculous. It's the first time that, uh, you know, sort of realistic textures were put on things. And when I first saw it, 
uh, in the movie theater, I was just bowled over, and I love this movie. And um, Robert Preston is unmatched. He's he's brilliant, and he plays it with such flair and such enjoyment that um, such it's just it's just such delightful to yeah. watch. And uh, you know, um, Lance Guest, who plays uh, Alex Rogan, the the uh, lead, is uh, just slightly a little too old for the character that he's playing, but it still works. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Well, you grow up in a trailer park, you're going to look 32. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and there are a couple of other really great 80s staples in this movie that I love. You know, Dana Hurley, you know, who was not only great in this movie as Greg, but also also in RoboCop, RoboCop, you know, as the head of OCP, one of our future sponsors, no doubt. (laughs) And uh, I know throwing a lot of money around on the internet, uh, you know, these support Detroit. And uh, then uh, also I loved him in Halloween 3, not a popular movie, but But uh, interesting, uh, fascinating. And I was totally in love with Catherine Mary Stewart. Well, there you go. Except, yes, uh, I agree. I mean, Night of the Comet. Yep. I mean, she was another staple of 80s movies yeah. that, yeah, you couldn't be a teenager and not love Catherine Mary Stewart. She was and just a great girl next door. She was just, you know. One little bit of trivia, as her grandmother in it is Meg Wiley, who was the head keeper in The Cage, yeah. the, the Star Trek. Yeah, uh, Granny Gordon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she, so uh, she was the, the head keeper in the, um, in the uh, absolutely. Or the Can keeper we, head, as you, you know. And of course, I mean the Craig Saffin's music score it's, is tremendous. It's glorious. I have I have a little story about that. Uh, I got to work on the DVD release of Last Starfighter, and we put together a uh, basically a day of interviews for everybody we could find who worked on the movie. And uh, we went over to Nick Castle's house, the director, and had basically an all day party. And people would come into this room, and we would uh, uh, photograph them and, and uh, shoot them with their interviews. And Craig Safin was there, and he came down, and he started playing on the piano in the living room the last Starfighter theme, and everyone started gathering around, and it was it brought me to tears. It was so beautiful. And all these people who had worked on the movie were, were um, you know, feeling the love. And uh, Ron Cobb was there, and he and uh, he and Jonathan Betchel, who wrote it, were goofing around in the in the kitchen talking about how fun it would be to have a Last Starfighter musical, and they started singing uh, singing these songs that should belong in the musical. It was just really amazing. Why don't you explain who Ron Cobb is? Ron, Ron Cobb is a legendary, is a legendary concept artist, one of my uh, one of my. Uh, idols. Uh, I got to work with him a little bit on The Abyss, but um, he designed basically everything that's in the movie that is uh, not a person. Um, and uh, he and uh, Jim Bissell uh, was the, you know, was the production designer. He built the sets, but Ron did all the heavy lifting and designed all the uh, uh, all the stuff and actually helped develop the 3D software that made it possible. He helped He helped them figure out a way to build the models because there was, you know, there was no way they to do it. Figuring they were stuff figuring out. it out on the fly. Yeah. And, of course, Rick Sternbeck, who was uh, a concept artist mm-hmm. on uh, Star Trek uh, The Next Generation, also worked on Last Starfighter, and he uh, did some design work too. But uh, Ron Cobb was a, is a giant, and yes. uh, uh, of course, he, I you know, love his work. He designed a bunch of aliens for Star Wars. Yeah. He did uh, Conan the Barbarian. He worked on Alien. Alien, Alien. Yeah. just wonderful work. Yeah. Can we talk about the, the, the most important thing in The Last Starfighter? Death Blossom? 
Death Blossom. <laughs> now, now look, and, and the gritty, realistic, you know, version of of the last Starfighter. I think that the Starfighter pilots would probably call that the Vomit Blossom, right? Because wow, like, and well, you, it had never been tested, so they true. didn't really know. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed it was supposed to release one large blossom. Right, right. They didn't know it was going to spin around shooting everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool because you've never seen a fighter like that. Right. Ever since Star Wars, everything was sort of patterned on an X-wing, which right. was basically patterned on an F-15. Right. Moving right as though it, there were an atmosphere, which of yeah. course is ridiculous. And Last Starfighter was the first, like where it really felt like this is something you could. Yeah. It had a space. non-earthbound uh, maneuvering ability. It was great. Exactly. And it just looked. Well, effing awesome. I, I actually watched this movie on Blu-ray uh, recently and with the audio commentary, and they talked mm-hmm. about how they were designing the heads-up display yep. for the gunner and were trying to uh, give the sense of the ship moving in three dimensions, where when you had seen the Star Wars films, they were the visual design of those dogfights was very much very sort of two-dimensional linear. linear It indicated two-dimensional thinking. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And that they were going for a more three-dimensional look. So that's why you get the spherical uh, indicators on the heads-up display and and the the, the chair moving around. It's just so well-designed and thought out. Yeah. Um, it's it's so much fun to watch, and I I you know there's been rumors about them doing sequel uh, work on it, and I just hope that whatever they do, uh, it doesn't spoil our wonderful memories. Well, I uh, well, I know will. you know a, a friend of mine, a, a colleague on uh, Star Wars Rebels, Gary Witta, yes. who wrote Rogue One, is a super fan for Last Starfighter, and he's been attached uh, recently for a, a sequel. Correct. And uh, I I do not doubt his passion and love for the material, and I know he had been working. With, I believe, Jonathan B. Tool. Correct. So let's hope they can recapture the magic. If yeah, I, I just want to say, you know, to, to sort of sum up that, uh, you know, I took my kids to see it recently at the New Beverly before the New Beverly closed for renovations, mm-hmm. and they loved it. It was great to see it on the big screen. It's, you know, interesting to see how technology has moved on because you could do those effects now on your phone, you know. That's right. Um, but, uh, I, I would be remiss if before we wrap this up, I didn't acknowledge what you said about Craig Safin's uh, a magnificent score. It really is, you know, we talk about the brilliance of, of, of John Williams' scores and those iconic scores. Mm-hmm. The Last Starfighter is really, you know, a pretty great space. It stands up right yeah. there next you know, to that, it. And that theme yeah. is, is, and I think if more than any other element about this movie that endures, that, that score is really something uh, there's special. There's a great uh, two-disc uh, soundtrack album mm-hmm. for that that came out last year or two. It's yeah. wonderful. Now, right. we didn't put this in the Shadow of Star Wars show, did we? No, but no, I don't think it, it belonged yeah. to Shadow of Star Wars. I but, think it belongs to Video Game Week. No, it, it, it totally does, but it also sort of fits with that, and I think this is the best of those Star Wars sort of homages, actually. I don't know, because I kind of feel like when we did in the Shadow of Star Wars, for the most part, it was movies that existed on an intergalactic scale um, that didn't really involve um, so much Earth as these civilizations. Now, obviously, Moonraker was an exception to that, but, it was insp- but it, Moonraker would not have happened without... Um, Star Wars. It was movies that were directly a product well, I mean, of Star this Wars. Is, you know, this is the Star League uh, defending against yeah, Zer and the Coda and Armada. Popularity think, of video you know, games. This was inspired no, as much by agreed. arcade games agreed. being huge at the time. And, agreed. But you know. had there been no Star Wars, there would be no last It, it is the same basic story as Star Wars, where you have this kid that's in a dead-end you know, mm-hmm. situation out in the middle of nowhere, dreaming of things. Obi-Wan comes down in his star car, yeah. takes him <laughs> away. <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. he has this, ability, this special ability. Yep. 
right. um, and he's swept up into a larger battle, and he gets to uh, you know sort of save the day mm-hmm. and, and fires torpedoes into the hangar bay and blow up the big right. ship. He's at the end. it's very just similar. like Luke Skywalker. He's got the you know the the clone self that uh, <laughs> right. has an awkward yeah, encounter beta, with beta his beta girlfriend, unit. beta unit. <laughs> Okay, I'll buy that for a dollar. Um, uh, you know, it's a movie that I always thought was kind of corny when it came out, but it like a lot of 80s I movies that I thought were corny at the time, I look at them now and I, I just appreciate how sort of solid they are. I they wonder t- if that means that you've become less corny as you've grown older or, or more, more corny. corny. Well, here, more. let me ask you this. I mean, here we are talking about these movies 30 years later. Part of that's nostalgia, but part of it is because these movies hold up. 30 years from now, are we going to be talking about movies that are coming out this year? I don't really think so. I'm not so. even talking about the movies that came out this year, this year. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we move to Friday, I want to ask you all a really quick question, which is applicable to Video Game Week. What was the video game system, if any, that you had in your house? Uh, Atari 2600. Okay. We never had video games in our house. The closest I had was one of those uh, little battery-powered uh, Donkey Kong uh, mm-hmm. Coleco, uh, Donkey Kong yeah. uh, mini arcade. You didn't games. have Mattel Electronics Auto Racing. I, and I, I never Battle had Star any Galactica of that. And... Never had any of that stuff because we, you know, we were poor and uh, well, you know, middle class. I, and... I have the Galactica one, by the way. Maybe just Sorry, <laughs> but how much you want for it? But I, I hung <laughs> out in the arcade in the original box still. <sighs> when it I, works. When I was in high school, I hung out in the arcade. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, you know, played all the games constantly. I loved the Star Wars game, the uh, Atari Vector uh, Star Wars game, and uh, Tron and. Uh, all those that you know, kids today think of as uh, you know, grandpa games. <laughs> but it was so much fun because it, not only was it fun to play, but it was fun to sort of expand on your um, grown upness and your ability to uh, exist on your own for a little period of time. And it represents freedom. And you know, if you had a pocket full of quarters, you could mm-hmm. spend the whole day. Yeah. And uh, what about you, Ashley? I had an Intellivision. Oh, you nice. Oh, yeah. I wanted yeah. one of those. That was a great. And did you have the voice synthesizer for B-52? B-52 no, Bomber. B-17, B-17 oh, Bomber. Oh, B-17 Bomber, yeah. I didn't have it. Uh, I didn't. But I rem- cool. my favorite games were Tron yeah. um, oh, and yeah. Pitfall. Right. I played mm-hmm. the unholy hell out of Pitfall. Um, yeah. And again, because in television, you know, pitfall. Yeah, pitfall. Pitfall. yes. Wow, I've only was, played the Atari. It was amazing. Okay, well, I can take you like and raise you one. Okay. Did you have ColecoVision? No, I had the Odyssey too. Oh god! So we did not have Pitfall. We had the knockoff Pickaxe Pete. Right. So whenever you know Atari would get all the great licenses, and then in television, inevitably Odyssey too, because it had much smaller base. Like I think me and six other kids had it. Um, we would always so instead of Space Invaders. You would get alien attack, right. yeah. and it would just be like the knockoff of whatever was super popular at the time. And we, I took such pride in that because it was like think different. You know, you all have Atari twenty six hundred. Every all the kids I babysat for had Atari twenty six hundred. But you know, we had the Odyssey too, and it had a keyboard, which it basically never used for anything. But it was like trying to convince you that it was like a computer right. that it could do That's all you these. You could sell things. your parents on it. I need this because I can <laughs> learn how to program. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and they actually had a computer programming cartridge like. Like where that was in one of the games. Basic where it's like learn programming to, con- cartridge. to program, you know. And um, but I mean, there were so many of these games that were just like these ridiculous knockoffs of, uh, you know, one of asteroids was UFO, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And but I, but, but you know, we we loved it, and it was just so freaking bizarre. <laughs> 
So what are we going to do for Friday? Well, that's a good question. I sure hope there's an after-school special in our future. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, there's some more recent films that we could consider. Uh, I would would throw out there a a more recent film, a documentary, The King of Kong. Oh, yes, yes, Which is a wonderful documentary about this this Donkey Kong championship, uh, this high-score thing. It's got heroes. It's got villains. Uh It's got weirdos. It's got video game history. (laughs) Giant monkeys. Uh, It's a really fun, super entertaining uh, documentary about uh, about video games or about Donkey Kong in particular. It's it's crazy. It's a crazy movie because you get – enthralled by this story of these you know Steve Wiebe is the challenger right mm-hmm. and he's this guy who just lives with his wife and kids and he has a little Donkey Kong game in his garage mm-hmm. and he just plays it and plays it and he's he's recording himself playing and you hear the kids yelling in the background and it's just so endearing mm-hmm. uh, and then they set up this other guy uh, what's his name oh, I'm blanking on his name the hot sauce king yeah um <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna get letters, oh, but uh, uh, yeah, but down in Florida, who is like the the Dark Lord, he's, uh, he's, the Pac-Man he, champion. He has a he has a, a mullet that uh, that looks like Darth Vader's helmet, basically, and he uh, is just so evil in his uh, in his complacency about being the top scorer holder of Donkey Kong. Billy Mitchell. Billy, Billy Mitchell. Uh, yes, of Billy course, Mitchell. Billy Mitchell. Uh, um, and this the inventor uh, of carrier based air power. This group. <laughs> <laughs> this, he bombed Tokyo. <laughs> the, the, this um, this arcade, uh, basically called the Twin Galaxies, that became the clearinghouse for high scores in the eighties for video games. It's just there's so much politics and intrigue, and it's just so amazing. <laughs> All the that weirdo you get, characters, yeah, the guys, judges, l- and scores. Let me say something, please. No. I mean, it's a great suggestion, a great suggestion. It's a great documentary. But, you know, we're here to do video game movies, movies about video games. We have not done one adaptation of a video game. So allow me to suggest an alternative to fighting. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and that Tell would us be your suggestion. Zach Penn's Game Over, which was about the hunt for the missing E.T. cartridges. Oh, Atari, yeah. I just watched that the last week, <laughs> yeah. too. Atari Game Over about, yes. Yeah. It's only just over an hour long. It is fantastic. It's really entertaining. Because it was this old... And it's so much more entertaining than the game itself. Myth oh. that apocry- people thought was apocryphal that when, you know, e- the E.T. game came out for Atari, it was so bad that literally they basically could not sell them and put buried them in a landfill. That's, that's not entirely true. The, the game is, there are far worse games for the Atari. But anyway, the, that, the problem was the it was myth. just, they this just the overproduced. The, the, legend, the, myth, yes, the legend, the legend. And that they had a, they had overproduced these games and, and they, to get rid of them, they had to dump them in a landfill somewhere, you know, just tens of thousands of these cartridges. Well, Zach Penn, the screenwriter, made this wonderful documentary uh, where he goes in search and he actually, <laughs> you know, spoiler alert, finds these well, cartridges. He, he enlists the aid of archaeologists and uh, you know, <laughs> Indiana Jones and, and they, the Raiders of the Lost ET it's, game. It's really, it's really fa- they, they find Adventure the, has uh, a new name. <laughs> they find the old records of where garbage was dumped in this landfill at different months of the year and they figured out what year those cartridges were dumped and, and it's, it's a really fun documentary. The main story is how Atari screwed over the guy who was forced to design this game by giving him what was it? 
a month Six and a weeks half or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to make this uh, to thing, make beginning this, to, end. to make this game from yeah from start to finish, and it was rushed so much, and they wanted an ET game so much that they were willing to ship anything, and they did. And they kind of it destroyed this poor guy's career, and he had made some of the best-selling Atari games ever. Yar's Revenge was his big game, and that was one of the top-selling games of all time. And well, and apparently Yar's Revenge was ET. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think Resident Evil fans are going to be awfully disappointed well, when they hear this week. And, you know, well, there's, we, we, there's, there's, well, there's there's a couple others that yeah. we could we could mention. Wreck It Ralph, right? Oh, but, absolutely. But, I mean, you know, a movie that was actually based on a video game that, on its own terms, is actually pretty good and well, Mortal Kombat gave the world Paul W.S. Anderson which is a kind of a mark against it but for like <laughs> 10 minutes there we thought like um, you know that guy was kind of interesting like I, um, and I, I would argue that he is interesting yeah. I, I think what he did with those early Resident Evil movies and, and, and Mortal Kombat but you know you look at his first movie Shopping and you know Event Horizon I think you know he's a huge genre fan I think he's done some really you know, really, you know, terrific work. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I, I don't like Mortal Kombat enough to say that it should be Friday. I actually, as much as I, I'm advocating for Atari Game Over, I did, I do think King of Kong is probably yeah, the I better agree. suggestion. Um, and does anyone mention Ready Player One? Yeah, oh, I was about to. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, that's a great suggestion too for Friday. What? I think it's a little too recent. I don't too, know. Soon. Too, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> you, we can't get the rights to show it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't have the window yet. You know, I really wanted to love that movie. Me too. Yeah. And I, I liked it. I couldn't do it. But I couldn't. I didn't love it. I, I. It gave me everything I ever thought I wanted, and yet the problem is, in my mind, Steven Spielberg is the perfect person to make this movie and the worst person to make this movie. Why do you say that? Because the, he's the perfect person to bring all these sort of uh, disparate um, uh, uh, subjects into the movie to be able to do it, like Roger Rabbit bringing all the cast. He has the juice to be able to. He has the juice to be able to. But no. he's too close to it. Mm -hmm. He's so scared of revering so, some of which is his own work from the past that it isn't given any joy. There's no joy in it, and so I think it fails. It failed for me based on those things. I get it. Uh, uh, does anyone want to make a case for Ready Player One, or should we go with King of Kong for Friday? I think King of Kong is great. Great. And there, there was one other film that I think has a, a, a some something of a legacy: Scott Pilgrim versus the World, um, which is uh, not really about video games, but the structure of the story is like it's. A video game. You yeah, know, it is I, like think it's, I think that's a stretch. Or, or even something like Edge of Tomorrow, which mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. is a film that you know you're sort of repeating time. It's sort of like you're getting to play the same level over and over again in a video game until you beat it. All good points, but again, you know, this is Video Game Week. We haven't actually. There's not one video game adaptation <laughs> in our Video Game Week, but that's. What you can expect from the 4:30 movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, Always expect the Monday. Uh, Tron. Tuesday. War Games. Cloak and Dagger on Wednesday. Thursday, The Last Starfighter. And Friday? The King of Kong. And this was Video Game Week on the 430 movie. This is Mark Altman. I invite you to purchase my new book. <laughs> so say we all. Uh, Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, wherever books are sold. I started reading it uh, this last week, and it's terrific.
Here's your ten dollars. <laughs> uh, I also uh, will be at the New York Comic Con doing a panel on Battlestar Galactica A to Z, as well as moderating a Ron Moore Masterclass. Tickets are on sale for October fifth and sixth at uh, New York Comic Con uh, website. And speaking of websites, check out our fantastic new website, the 430movie.com. It's just 430movie.com. 430movie.com. Right, no colon. No colon and no the. Right, so 430movie.com, and you can find access to all of our podcasts, including our early two episodes, which have nothing to do with the 430 <laughs> movie whatsoever. Right. The pilot. They're the pilot. Yeah, you know what? It's the, the cage. Well, that's what... That, yeah. We were just joking about that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so at we, least we're on the same page. We didn't have a format, and and it was great, but it was like every other podcast out there. And then on episode three, we realized what the show was. So those episodes are still there. And if you're curious to see Jeffrey Hunter on our original two podcasts, <laughs> check him out. Uh, also, there's some great, uh, uh, um, fantastic 430 movie swag on our website that Darren, uh, you'll see his genius as a conceptual designer when you uh, check out the thing. And uh, before we go, I just want you to uh, continue the conversation on social media by following Steve Melching at... At Stephen Melching. Darren Dockerman. At Darren Dock. One R. Uh, at... Ashmaster Zero, spelled Z-E-R-O. And you can find me, Mark A. Altman, at Mark A. Altman on Twitter and Instagram. So thank you for joining us for the 430 movie. We'll be back with an all-new theme week next week. Next week.